you're telling medical professionals that they can take away people's personal life-saving equipment that they need for everyday life in order to give it to someone you deem more worthy of living. And this really captures these concepts of defective or waste, just being unworthy of living that is often assigned to people with disabilities or other marginalized experiences. Welcome to Unlivable Cultures, the podcast where we talk about getting wasted. Because the health communism chapter on waste. (laughs) Yep. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You definitely hyped that up too much. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. This is going to be the whole episode. We talk about waste. We talk about like a defectiveness. We talk about like eugenics and people being, what's the word? Just like willing to quote unquote sacrifice people with any disabilities or you know difference of experience or mind body so it makes sense and it was funny (laughs) yeah sure it it does make sense i guess and it's better than anything i came up with because yeah i don't have anything so that's fair enough Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to Unlivable Cultures. Unlivable Cultures is a podcast making with and borrowing from anthropology, social theory, and other forms of knowledge for a more livable world. My name is Cody Scahan. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm joined by... Julia Coverdale. I use they, them pronouns, um, and that's all I'm going to say about myself. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. The mystery. <laughs> That's more than enough. (laughs) (laughs) And my name is Clayton Gerard, and I use he, him pronouns. Yeah. I I was going to say, I think that was the smoothest intro we've done so far, you know? It's just like, boom. I almost did the Disney Channel thing of like, (laughs) and you're listening to Unlivable Cultures, you know, where they did the mouse ears. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. What an iconic period. And now children these days, you know, they're not going to understand that reference. All right, so to get started, maybe a little activity. We could have a etymology game. First one we got, where did hysteria come from? And why did people diagnose it as an illness? Hey, that was in the chapter, was it? Or was it not? It was, it was in something I, I, I read recently. Okay, it was in something I read recently. It's called, it's like from Greek, and it means like womb illness or something like that yes something yes. like that like of the how many, uterus how many, po- oh, yeah. how many points do i get for that one zero fifteen thousand <laughs> <laughs> somewhere between zero and fifteen thousand okay i'll take it <laughs> so hysteria is from like around 1801 and it originally was defined as a neurotic condition peculiar to women and thought to be caused by a dysfunction of the uterus a general sense of unhealthy emotion or excitement is what the term became known for in 1839. And you want to guess some of the symptoms? Hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to let Cody take this one because I know oh, wow. what his, I know what it is and what has been produced because of it. So I feel like this is also just like a loaded trap for me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
I could just read them off if you want. I mean, or you could guess any. They probably wouldn't be far off. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it's something to do with, like, emotional language or, like, you know, sort of, like, voice, shrill voice or something like that. And then, like, I know it's also maybe tied to, like, fainting um, was a thing. And then, yeah, I'm just going to call myself there. (laughs) Okay, so from the research, very, very surface-level research that I did, some of the symptoms include anxiety, shortness of breath, fainting, nervousness, sexual desire, insomnia, Ah, fluid retention, heaviness in the abdomen, irritability, loss of appetite for food or sex, while paradoxically (laughs) sexually forward behavior, and, (laughs) uh, quote, tendency to cause trouble for others, unquote. (laughs) I also saw one symptom being like cold feet as a symptom of hysteria. It's basically anything that men found annoying or frustrating in women became just a diagnostic criteria for hysteria. So, so it's a mix of like, they want me, but they don't want me. So I'm sad about it. You know, like it's, it's obviously an illness, you know, Julia, do you know what some of the treatments were for hysteria? (laughs) You have that that expression of knowing. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm aware (laughs) of some of the treatments of hysteria. Treatments include. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. Um, I don't know if we, I don't know. I mean, we talk about lots of things on this podcast, but um they were basically it's all for science yeah it's all for science yeah are these are these fda approved cures i just i just want to know that i i mean actually i really don't know if um what the cure is is fda approved um but i mean thinking of this as just like a straw man of an illness i don't think there is an fda approved <laughs> yeah 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 treatment or cure well, but like but like yeah i mean it was taken very seriously like you know back in the day though like in especially it's in a lot of psychological texts as i understand it from the time and you know as was homosexuality that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is also some others that we'll get to. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorites. (laughs) Do we want Cody to guess the? um, Uh, Not again. (laughs) (laughs) Cody seems a little flustered. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know if this will fix that. (laughs) It's 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 because I'm hysterical or something. Maybe I don't know. That's why I'm flustered. (laughs) Get me some smelling salts or something. Yeah. Is that one of the treatment methods? smelling salts i don't think so no think of like treatment methods as in like the 1950s era ah okay so a little bit later in smelling salts okay um some sort of surgery i'm guessing maybe like a lobotomy that might be too extreme but why don't you do it julia just say it (laughs) um i don't know what that noise was um the treatment for it was masturbation, specifically with a whatever you would consider like a vibrator at the time was. Hmm. Yes, and sometimes <laughs> doctors would facilitate that orgasm for you. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I was okay. Interesting. How about the term? Okay, I might say this one wrong. Dysthesia Ethiopica. Dysthesia Ethiopica. What does that mean first? Then maybe That's I the can question. Uh, well, what does it okay. mean? 
I thought it, okay. I thought this was entomology, but uh, all right. Um, well, I mean, like it's originally from like the eighteen fifties or something. Okay, okay, I see. Want me to tell you? I'm too excited yeah. for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a mental illness that leads black people to be lazy, coined by then Dr. Samuel Cartwright in the 1800s. And this was just another illness used to, you know, confirm the superiority of white people and also justify enslavement because if black people were like, quote unquote, diagnosed with this condition, the cure for being lazy is to be forced to work and do hard labor. So in that ways, the white enslavers were actually helping them. Yeah, yeah. That's like, that That logic seems to exist somewhat today, I think, in terms of especially like labor, so like social welfare programs that are based around labor, though, like, you know. Caricature of the welfare queen from the Reagan exactly. era. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly... Donald Trump Jr. called Zelensky a welfare queen recently. <laughs> Fun tidbit for I didn't see the U.S. <laughs> for more aid. And also, there are legislatures around the company trying to require families that um, seek, what's the word, subsidies like TANF and SNAP benefits to prove that they are actively looking for a job. And mothers that cannot do potential legislation would say mothers that can't like go back to work or prove that they're actively looking for a job um, can't be eligible for those programs after six weeks of birth. So they have that like six weeks of a maternity period where they can be eligible. But if they don't go back to work in that time, they can't receive those benefits anymore. But for life, hashtag protect the child. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We can get into it. Okay, the last one I've got is very easy, called protest psychosis. Well, I'm guessing, yeah, that's just <laughs> mental illness associated with people who protest like against the government. Protests, yeah. Like they're all in a mutual psychosis type of thing? No. No? No, it's individual. Uh Coined in 1968 by white psychiatrist Walter Bromberg and Frank Simon, kind of following this lineage from Cartwright of the drapetomania and other illnesses, they called this, like similar to schizophrenia, they called it protest psychosis and claimed that black people's stress of asserting civil rights, and I quote, has stimulated specific reactive psychosis. Thus, resistance to white supremacy was framed as psychosis. So, yeah, this clearly has to do with, like, you know, the civil rights era stuff. But, like, and that this is clearly a response to that. But, like, of course, you know, like, May 68. I don't know. That's so weird. That's so weird. That I don't know. that The, the timing that it also happens during the year of May 68. It's very interesting to me. And one interesting thing is... Eli Clare, who writes about some of this as a disability justice scholar and writer, um, traces this and connects it to Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, when the police officer Darren Wilson killed the young unarmed black man Michael Brown in Ferguson. In Darren Wilson's testimony, he claimed that 
And this is a quote from his test from Wilson's testimony. When I grabbed him, I felt like a five-year-old holding on to Hulk Hogan, who is a six yeah. foot seven, 300 pound professional wrestler. That's how big he felt and how small I felt. And according to Claire, there's no reflection of an adult man and a teenager of almost equal size. Both of them were six foot four, brown weighing more. And Wilson, the adult, armed and wielding the power of the state. Instead, Wilson creates a picture of a monstrously overpowering black man. He continues claiming at one point that the 18-year-old had the most intense, aggressive face. The only way I can describe it, it looks like a demon. And that kind of wanted to share that to kind of show the lineage of the ways in which pathology and ableism kind of morphs and, you know, controls, well, not controls, but influences a lot of the social oppressions and economic oppressions and all the other inequities that exist today. It's kind of often more of a invisible or unrecognized specter in these issues. So fun stuff. One thing that we can say about our podcast is that it's always really lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> we just laugh to make some of the tension dissipate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the things that I really wanted to highlight, I guess in the beginning, is kind of like the tagline, and we um, are going to talk about the waste chapter in health communism and other aspects that are happening around society and our culture, specifically related to COVID and you know the medical industrial complex and stuff, is this term that Eli Claire calls defective. It's kind of similar to what um, in health communism they call waste. And according to Claire, defectiveness wields incredible power because ableism builds and maintains the notion that defective body minds are undesirable, worthless, disposable, or in need of a cure. However, in today's world where ableism fundamentally shapes white Western cultural definitions of normal and abnormal, worthy and unworthy, whole and broken body minds, any person or community named defective can be targeted without question or hesitation for eradication, imprisonment, institutionalization. So that's just one kind of concept I thought could be grounding in our conversation today. So one of the resources that I wanted to talk about, um, I shared an article called State Policies May Send People with Disabilities to the Back of the Line for Ventilators by the Center for Public Integrity. This is speaking to a lot of the chaos that happened in 2020 with the onset of the COVID pandemic and the race for ventilators in hospitals and everywhere else with people seeking treatment. Basically, the whole issue is that many states had policies in place that instructed doctors and hospital personnel to prioritize certain people with certain conditions or the absence of certain conditions to receive medical help and like life-saving care in many cases. So one of the examples they brought up in this article was the fact that so, for example, Alabama policy instructed people to basically judge which patients would have the greater likelihood of living or living longer. 
and giving the medical resources to those. I'll read one direct quote. Policies and guidelines in 14 states, including Alabama's, put patients with specific criteria or diagnoses at the back of the ventilator line in a way disability advocates decry as discriminatory. Alabama, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Utah direct hospitals to take dementia into account. In Washington, the state's guidelines say doctors should consider, quote, baseline functional status, unquote, when determining whether to move patients to end-of-life care, including, quote, loss of reserves in energy, physical ability, cognition, and general health, unquote. So if you appeared unhealthy in these different areas that were mentioned or just generally unhealthy, hospital personnel and doctors could just put you towards the end of life care instead of prioritizing your health and giving you the resources that you need. A lot of these states kind of updated their policy when all the chaos of COVID was happening, but didn't really give clear guidance on what doctors and others should do, which I don't want to minimize how stressful this would be for a doctor to not have clear guidance of which patients to help. Ideally, the system would have all the resources to help people in need, and we wouldn't be prioritizing these kinds of, or we wouldn't have to be discussing these kinds of priorities, and we would have the infrastructure in place to be able to support people even when there is an influx of need instead of continually cutting costs over years and decades and then being in this position. But for example, Alabama, when they made new guidelines after all this COVID debacle, they gave no specific directions on how to ration ventilators. But the policy said equipment and supplies will be used in ways consistent with achieving the ultimate goal of saving the most lives. Some other states gave instructions for personnel to kind of have like a five-year rule of who has the most likelihood of living for the next five years and what that quality of life would look like. Another example, policies in six states, Connecticut, Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Minnesota, and New York say hospitals should consider taking ventilators away from patients who rely on them in daily life if others need them more, which is a practice that a lot of disability activists were discouraged and decried in a lot of ways because you know, you're telling medical professionals that they can take away people's personal life-saving equipment that they need for everyday life in order to give it to someone you deem more worthy of living. And this really captures these concepts of defective or waste, just being unworthy of living that is often assigned to people with disabilities or other marginalized experiences. I don't want to overlook the fact that medical racism exists. And when you're talking about prioritizing people that have like the longest lifespan ahead of them, a lot of people of marginal identities and experiences or people of color have, you know, shorter lifespans because of the systemic oppressions and, you know, the discrimination of everyday life that exists. So I've been talking for a little while. Someone else, please say some stuff. I I guess I'll start by saying that, like, these determinations are not surprising um, and that it's definitely not a position I want to ever have to be in of trying to figure out how to even navigate this kind of a situation in the first place. But 
specifically hearing about taking away ventilators from people who are already disabled to give them to other people just sounds horrific. And I think that you're, you know, it's gonna, because all of these things and ableism is, is rooted in so many, like scientific, so much scientific racism, it feels that like, ultimately, a lot of the people who would have been prioritized would have been white, able-bodied people, and then from there, white disabled people. But I also just feel that like, we're, we're seeing a continuation of the these kind of eugenic lines of thinking in with COVID um, in terms of our current policies and reactions to the pandemic, acting like the pandemic is not happening and that we're all over it and that people are not getting sick and not dying anymore just leads to this belief that the people who are currently dying from COVID are not as as fit for survival or these are like unavoidable deaths when we had public policy in place that could have easily avoided these deaths and we have just decided to stop using them. Yeah, for me, like, um, I think what really sticks out the most is not having this clear policy, like it's a double-edged sword because not having the clear policy, like you get into people's, the doctor's individual bias at the time, you know, they're they're forced to make these tough decisions and these biases are like created within the the system of capitalism. And um, there's all these other influences, like Clayton mentioned, talking about the the constant cut to healthcare and, you know, like being a doctor and knowing these things and hearing about these things. It's like, well, you know, it's you're almost in that case forced to make the sort of economic calculation or, or perhaps maybe more geared towards that just because that's the way that healthcare is talked about largely. So it's like relying on these individual decisions under lots of stress in the moment can lead to things like that. While as the, the other hand, as Clayton mentioned, like a lot of the you know written policy can already also be subject to these influences. So it's just like a matter of enshrining it in, in, in policy or relying on like spur of the moment decision from people who are overworked and under extremes amounts of stress and forced to face with a difficult situation. And like that would be hard for even someone in perfect health, like, you know, complete state of rest and um, to think about and consider. So it's, it's kind of like, it's how showing how I think capitalism makes a lot of these questions and philosophical dilemmas, you could say, like, even more difficult and like, uh, severe than they should be in general. And I want to quickly speak to Julia's point about just the fact that COVID is still very real and happening. And, you know, we've kind of gotten to a place culturally where we're just collectively denying it almost, which is very harmful. I want to emphasize the fact that like COVID is very new and we don't know a lot about what's going on and we've kind of collectively got to this place where we don't want to recognize it but also kind of speaking to your point cody like states had these policies in place for years and it was never an issue and like i was looking at kansas's since that's you know where we're from and their policy was written or revised or whatever their policy was dated for 2009. So like this kind of 
prioritizing of taking away people's personal ventilators and giving them to people who they deem to have a greater need. This has been on the books for years. It was just never an issue and never brought to public attention like it was in the past couple of years. So I don't want to be blaming individuals or like the doctor that's in that situation or even the policymakers that are sitting there in 2020 all of a sudden having to deal with this that you know their predecessors 15 years ago put in place but you know these eugenic ideologies and ideals have been you know structurally embedded in our system from day 1 or most prominently the 1800s on yeah some sneaky shit disability activist Alice Wong who was the editor for the book disability visibility even made the statement, were I to contract coronavirus, I imagine a doctor might read my chart, look at me, and think I'm a waste of their efforts and precious resources that never should have been in shortage to begin with. He might even take my ventilator for other patients who have a better shot at survival than me. And it's that kind of knowledge, having to live with that is just like, you know, devastating. Yeah, and I some for some reason and i know that all medical professionals are not like this but my brain just keeps thinking of all of the like mean girls you know that we all knew growing up growing up in high school that got into nursing in the medical field and just like how how, how deeply the medical field is like built on racism and ableism and misogyny and like not listening to people when they tell you like their pain and so it's like you know, in, in some senses you have to balance and none of us are doctors in that sense um, or want to be doctors in that sense. Or any sense. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so like I, I definitely don't, again, I don't like, I don't know how I would go about that situation, but so much of medical training and textbooks is built upon this racism and like eugenics theories, um, even if that's not explicitly what they're going to call it, you know, that way of thinking has been so built into science and like the way that we do, uh, the way that we think about like the world and the body. I think it's, um, it's not surprising that it would play out this way, but I also am a little skeptical of like, necessarily believing in the goodness of all of the people within the medical field and system, you know. So this brings us to another issue that was proliferating during this time, which was the supply chain upheaval that we have still been dealing with. And it was part of it was some of the reason why ventilators were in such short supply. But I mean, this has still been the case, like a chip shortage has been in place since 2020 and we can get into the reasons why but i mean a lot of that technology is needed for you know medical equipment and medical supplies and then you have those kinds of companies that are making those products competing with automobile manufacturers and apple and microsoft and other companies like that that and the us the us military industrial complex i have to mention like i think that was the most striking one. Sorry to interrupt, but like, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because I was listening to a podcast from the Jacobin today that was about inflation. And they mentioned like also something that like 
hasn't been acknowledged or talked about much um, for obvious reasons, I think. The U.S. military is like one of the biggest buyers of chips also. They made the argument, which I thought was really interesting and compelling that like, you know, for example, if this sort of investment um, in, in chips and buying chips was used for like, say, the um, like some sort of climate plan, larger climate plan, like they talked about the um, the Build Back Better plan. If that was the cause of the chip shortage, then like people within the government would be talking about it and highlighting maybe, you know, our priorities are a little bit out of whack, but like because it is the military industry, then it's like it's not really mentioned or talked about. So I thought that was quite striking. Well, also in some perspectives it's justified like you know our defense is more important than some groups of people receiving ventilators or CPAP right, yeah. machines or anything yeah, else. that's why it's not talked about exactly because it's like yeah well the military is saving lives too and all of this so it's yeah yeah did anyone have thoughts on the supply chain th- stuff oh i thought you were going you had more to say i thought i might too but i don't have anything at the moment so go for it <laughs> Yeah, I guess I think for me, what was really striking from this article was like when they were talking about uh, specifically like with with the supply chain shortage and chip problem, chip shortage due to supply chain problems, um, which was partly facilitated by COVID. We, we read this article called How the Supply Chain Upheaval Became a Life or Death Threat from the New York Times. Um, this is about medical device shortage. And they start out with this portrait of this man as uh, Mr. Norwood and talk about how he wasn't able to get a CPAP machine. He was waiting for extremely long time because the supply chain was disrupted because before COVID, there was an expectation from the like su- supply side of it that there wouldn't be a huge demand for items and, and products that have these microchips in it. And so there was the infrastructure wasn't put in place to like have this sort of escalation in um, production that would meet um, certain demands. And then COVID happened and everybody was inside. And then you could argue whatever other contributing factors, there was an increased demand for chips for products such as like uh, computers, laptops, other things. And then of course the ventilators as uh, Clayton mentioned. So it's kind of a combination of so many different factors. And then um, once like, so the, the problem with this too is they, they uh, show that like it takes nearly two years for the like for the chip manufacturers to like build the appropriate infrastructure to meet this demand. And so it's not like this easy fix solution of just like pump out more chips. And even if it was like like the supply chains aren't listening to the people producing these medical devices because they're such a small percentage of the total output of such chips. So um, it reflects like just such a small portion of how much they actually make. Then it's like um, the ones that they do actually make and their priorities are with like the automotive industry and uh, wireless communication gadgets and of course the military. So these are the priorities. They're the ones that the supply chain listens to. And this is where the uh, manufacturers actually say, okay, sure, we'll make some, but they don't send them to the people that need them for medical devices and things like this. So it's clearly like talking about the priority of like the military, of of automotives, of people buying devices and, and keeping the economy going, I guess would be also the argument with that, rather than like having these life-saving devices, not just ventilators, but also just, yeah, 
outside of the pandemic, like CPAP machines that literally allow people, which I thought was interesting too, is he was talking about not being able to work because he didn't have a CPAP machine that would allow him to sleep and have the energy throughout the day and not pass out and have his heart stop several times during the day because he didn't have a CPAP machine and everything. And it was just, yeah, just another note I had that I thought was the way the article was sort of contextualized. Like they used a lot of quotes from this Mr. Norwood and and some other people they talked to. I thought it was really interesting because he ended with like, there's a quote, he says, I'm just a waiter trying to bring people food and drinks and I can't get a CPAP. Mr. Norwood said, if the airplane pilot isn't getting his, it might be a while before I get mine. So I just thought it was really interesting even then, like, where he's talking about it from his perspective and is saying like, he has this own like sort of like built in. He's like, I'm just, I just want my machine like all that, like, but sure the pilot should get ahead, but it's like still this sort of like cost benefit thing built into that and everything. Like calculating the value of your life. Exactly. Based on your, your your contribution to society. Yeah. Based on something as like, you know, like superficial, I would say to some degree when you have these sort of conversations related to occupation. Yeah. Like, and then he ends, it's so unfortunate how money controls everything. He said, our priorities are really skewed, but like that's kind of built into his own like sort of thing. So I thought, I just thought that was really interesting how, yeah, how pervasive this line of thinking can be, even when sometimes people like the propaganda machine runs, because even people at the heart of these things perform these cost benefit analysis of their own lives, even when they realize that like money is the initial problem running this. Yeah, I think like kind of to build on what Cody said is that a lot of people I think can identify the problem or like the problems and the roots of the problems in our culture, in our society, but they don't know what a good solution would be and how we achieve that. And so I think that I just, I find it interesting that like people have an awareness of the problem, but they don't necessarily have an awareness of the solution because half the time people can't get past, you know, all of the the propaganda and the teachings of like socialism and communism bad, even though when you like, break down the theory it is not you know yeah it just kind of points to the fact like how deep this propaganda goes into foreclosing the like i think in some cases it it even just hides what are pretty logical or can be easy solutions it's just like because there's so much ideology telling you oh no it's bad like you know welfare welfare queens like uh scaring you with this image of certain people um certain figures then it just like creates this sort of like skewed logic where like, you know, what what could actually be reality and like what actually is reality isn't quite clear. And so it's not like you said, there's so much work to just break through and, and, and cut through to some sort of form of understanding of what the actual issue is. And then even then the solution becomes even harder to work at because then um, there's still so much effort put in making the common sense solutions, not seeing common sense or easier to achieve. Yeah, and that it, I think that does connect a lot to the um, the waste chapter and health communism because um, they just 
contextualize this specifically within like to me the current like private healthcare system um particularly in the US and how it's sort of like based around the surplus or waste populations um i have a quote here maybe waste surplus populations are policed and certified by capitalist states to demarcate the boundary of who is an acceptable member of the body politic with all who fall outside of this normal frame labeled as a burden so i think um the way it's talked about in the U.S., especially these days, is as the burden, as they point out. And they go on to say, first and foremost, as eugenic burden, demographic threat, threat of disruption to the social order, reproductive threat, bloodline threat, the three generations of imbeciles, um, etc. Second, as p- burden of public debt, that protecting the health of the most vulnerable will lead to the uh, immiseration of the many, a de- demographic threat managed by the appeal that we can we can and should only take care of our own, which constructs itself as the we. So like it's clearly driven not only by this legacy of exclusion of disabled bodies and, and damaged bodies, but it also goes in hand with capitalism and the like injunction for profit and efficiency and all of these things as well, which I think really comes out in like the uh, health communism book. This chapter, in my understanding, was kind of to really emphasize where capitalism has brought us in this medical industrial complex of like viewing people as surplus and waste, similar to what I quoted from Eli Clare talking about defective and just like the disposability that certain people and communities are assigned as. I interpreted their chapter as speaking to this inversion of that idea and saying like we can't be viewing people as like waste as surplus like they would be draining our system if we have health communism which they are putting forth this like entire medical system that would take care of people and not prioritize the dollar on top of people's lives they're talking about how that would require inverting this idea of like people leeching from the system or leeching on the system and actually creating a system that helps people and sustains communities. Um, So that was kind of my interpretation of what they were doing with waste. You know, a lot of it is sort of like the humanistic focus of talking about how people have become marked as like social surplus populations or, or eugenic burdens and burdens of public death, which debt, which is like sort of on the face of it, mostly humanistic argument. But it like, I like also their, you know, and this isn't even the, not the point, but I think it's also like when you have books like this and, and, and have arguments like this, like if you do want to like touch a lot of people, it can like, it, it can help to also make the, um, the other arguments like such as the economic argument that they make because like at one point they mentioned that there was the public health program and like the soviet system basically and it was turned out in most cases to be like cheaper than like the private healthcare system to take care of people on average and then also they talked about there's a point where they say like uh the us and russia were in a longevity race in order to like sort of, you know, sell their system. So the U.S. was just responding to the the Soviet planned like medical system and their um, hiring and, and like training of lots of medical professionals. And basically they were trying to extend the health, uh, the longevity of people in the U.S. in order to... Um, like keep up with the Soviets, but like uh, they say, like, ironically, as many public health scholars have pointed out, there is in reality greater positive impact on life expectancy from socialized 
medical systems than privatized or capitalist ones. I didn't I didn't follow the footnote there, but like, yeah, I thought that was a, a really good addition to the to the broader, broader frame of the argument they were making. And they also talked about it being colonizing mission as well. Like they didn't want Russia spreading their social socialist medical system. So like the U.S. was a lot more proactive and colonizing outside of the U.S. with our like privatized capitalistic medical system. So got to love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did appreciate the sort of like, as you said, like the inversion. And I think how you laid it out was really accurate as to their picture. They talk about like inverting and putting like these um, surplus or um, burden, like burdensome populations at the center of the healthcare system and everything. But they don't like exactly describe how this, like the finer details of that, like how this would happen, like what would be the utility of doing so and everything like that other than from the humanistic perspective, which is all well and good. But yeah, I think it just, yeah. And I'm sure they do get into it in other parts of the book. But if you just read this chapter as a standalone, it can kind of stand out to you as something that sort of an omission. Thus, I would not read this chapter as a standalone. This is a plug to read the entire book and learn exactly. about health communism <laughs> from people who know their shit. Because <laughs> I've been very impressed with their work so far. Yeah, and I think the chapter also considering the concept of waste with this surplus of like eugenic burden and debt burden is like this idea that people are disposable specifically when they're leeching on the system or when they're taking advantage of programs or like we have so many hoops that people have to get through in order to like access this stuff. And then even then we consider a lot of like conditions or situations to be things that make people undeserving of any kind of assistance, which is where that concept of waste really metastasizes and just like starts to rot away at things. And I do want to point out, like connected to our earlier conversation, they quote Frederick Ludwig Hoffman, who was a race scientist and eugenicist in the late 1800s. He did a lot of writing talking about how people in the black community and African Americans were just of a lesser race, basically. So like this idea that black people were inferior and thus had worse health affirms this idea that they shouldn't be eligible for this kind of like health assistance because they're just leeching on the system. And then we also get into the moral ideas of like, you know, considering the mental illnesses that were used previously um, that we discussed, like that kind of idea just reaffirms this perspective that people aren't worthy of any kind of assistance and that they're leeching on the system. And so they're disposable because it's not helping society. And that directly manifests into eugenics movements and so on and so forth. So he had a lot of awful things to say about African-Americans and, um, lots of pseudoscience to spread. He also, as he was advocating for eugenics, he said in a book called Some Problems of Longevity that 
it requires no argument to support the theory that the insane or mentally deficient should not produce offspring. And like a lot of the inspiration and motivation for that was to save the state money in the long term. If you keep, quote, those kinds of people, unquote, from having children, then you'll keep more people from having to need assistance and thus clean up society and only give assistance to those that are worthy. Yeah, like I know um, like that kind of conversation even goes today. Like I like listening to like the maintenance phase podcast and death panel. They talk about how like just taking care of these people or like, you know, providing them support and everything would actually save money in the long run. In the most cases, it would just be cheaper. And I think that's kind of also what they're hinting at in this chapter when they say like the the uh, public health care systems, the socialized medical systems, like overall save money because, you know, once again, that's not the point. It's about people's lives. It's about protecting people. But, um, you know, even that argument doesn't stand up. But I think it's just like quite clear evidence that like just broader of like linkings of racism, imperial imperialism, colonialism and capitalism serve to like give these like buttressing arguments that aren't actually logical if you look at them but they only serve to like um support each system together because like they're kind of held up together you're like anti like you know opposite version of solidarity that we as we normally talk about or as activist circles not normally talk about like solidarity of capitalism racism colonialism all these things yeah and like you spoke to i mean it's obviously not the point but there is so much research that just like supports the return on investment for these kinds of programs and assistance. And yet it doesn't speak to the ideological aspect of this argument, like the whole capitalist ideology of the some communities and populations aren't deserving of any kind of supports. Yeah, I I think listening to this is so interesting because I recently saw somebody um, post about that all of the recent like trans bills, which we can get into this if we want to talk about this in a different podcast, but um, that all the recent trans bills are not necessarily designed to become law, but they're designed to be propaganda and to like stir up this discussion within the general population of like, trans people and drag queens being um, predatory and groomers and and bringing back these circles of thinking. Um, and so I, I just think it's interesting to, to think about the depths to which like the propaganda within the United States runs in order to keep these systems alive, which are kind of necessary to keep capitalism running because, I mean, you can't, you can't get rich without workers and to make just fact manufacture things on mass. And if you want to make a profit, you're not going to pay those people living wages. Yeah, I think that's really true. And like there definitely is utility for these like proposed legislations, even if they don't pass, because it really feeds this like victim narrative that really stokes a lot of conservatives up around like patriotism and the idea of a collective identity and just like this fear that the country is going to something that you don't believe in and that you're opposed to so you have to like fight for you know your gas stove and you have to condemn 
Disney Plus and the M&M's. I don't know what to call them. <laughs> the M&M's themselves, whatever the personified M&M characters. The, the, the M&M's smoke persons. That's not they're not. Spoke. They're like no. What are they? They had a name for them. It was like character. It was they had a, no. They had a name for it on the Twitter because I remember it was the. Um, they were talking about the the green Eminem. Spoke people. That is going to upset me so much. No, it was like spokes in Eminems or something like spokes M's or I don't or I don't remember something. something. Yeah. Anyway, it's just like stoking those fears because I mean, we know that. A lot of the conservatives that are in this camp are also a very privileged positionality. So they don't necessarily have oppressions and, you know, they're not really victimized in a lot of serious ways in our culture. So you have to take, you know, like the M&M's things and you have to take the gas stove and you have to take all these other like hot button issues and make yourself a victim of these narratives. So, yeah, I completely agree, Julia. Sorry. Yeah. And I I think, you know, it's really easy to be like, we should adopt these systems because they're cheaper and they're better and they will benefit people. But we have to remember that capitalism and the United States does not care for people, which is such a fun, happy thought. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that that um, what what you just said then like kind of like opens up something that. I had to respond to like what you said earlier. It's like capitalism does care about people and their health, but as workers. So like, I think that's what like the, I, I think it's the maintenance phase podcast goes into this with like the, um, the idea of like the workplace, like wellness programs and everything, because it's like, ah, if you participate in this like program to like help lose weight as this workplace, or if you do, um, like, you know, you support, like you do, instead of, uh, taking the elevator, you take the stairs and all these other things. Like, like it's, it's more in in some cases, very rigorous for uh, people to prove this, but like, then you can get either cheaper healthcare or like some sort of bonuses as a result of this. And it clearly like privileges the participation of already healthy bodies. Um, people who can't like healthy bodies. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah. Quote unquote, as we, as we define it. Um, and which is like related to a lot of like BMI and, and weight stuff that isn't really based in like any sort of solid base, um, foundation, but it is, yeah. So the capitalist system really only cares about like quote unquote healthy bodies that can, you know, that we have enough that, that can work. It doesn't matter like how many are lost in the process, as long as we have like a healthy population to run the the factories and, and machines and everything. But also thinking of scholarship around debility, it's not just, you know, having it's not just capitalism having productive workers at all costs, but like capitalism, it's like emphasis and its existence upon exploitation debilitates people over time. And like the capitalist system can directly profit off of that through the medical industrial complex. So you've got people being debilitated through constant stress or any kind of physical labor that they're doing through work. And then they have to go to the doctor and get treatment and like they're paying for that. And it's just like a constant cycle of profitability by, you know, supporting or 
advocating for people's wellness and also like contributing to unwellness and like conditions and situations that negatively impact people's health and then profiting off of those negative health outcomes. Some sneaky little shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point because as you mentioned, it's just like, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting too, because like with the whole debility paradigm and, and, and reading, like touching this conversation, not being as immersed into it as you are, but like, it's also clear to me that it's like, everybody is like, you know, it's not just about like debility of, or like disability that's visible too. It's like the fact that like, um, you know, taking part in a lot of these jobs is like, you're not getting enough sleep. You're not getting enough of these other things. It's like all of it's contributing to like your negative health outcomes just has like spiraling effects. So it's like, even the people who are like, um, diagnosed or like considered quote unquote healthy, like are experiencing negative health outcomes as a result of capitalism and their work, even if they're not like labeled as such. So it does kind of add this, like everybody is implicated in this as well. I just, I think the sneaky little shits really sums it up. (laughs) One other thread that I kind of wanted to follow and kind of speak to as an example of ways in which people and communities are considered disposable, especially in terms of resources and disability and specifically just like eugenic ideologies, was the case of Eric Gardner, who was murdered by a police officer in New York. The story is basically that Eric Garner was 43 and killed in Staten Island in 2014. Officer Pantaleo, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, wrapped an arm around his neck from behind and took him to the ground. He was being arrested for selling untaxed cigarettes. And it is said that he resisted. The medical examiner in the case testified at the disciplinary hearing that the pressure on Mr. Garner's neck and chest set in motion a fatal asthma attack. And this was a really pivotal moment of police brutality and subsequent activism that occurred around Black Lives Matter and advocating for justice and criminal charges against the police officer who did that did that it was one of the first rallying cries of i can't breathe which is one of the statements that eric gardner made as he was being pushed against against the ground and choked the court cases kind of fell through and the officer that killed eric gardner didn't receive any federal charges it's interesting because Patrick Lynch in this New York Times article, who was the president of the Police Benevolent Association, which is an interesting name, claimed that Officer Pantaleo had been unfairly singled out for blame and was carrying out a superior's orders. Lynch is quoted saying, scapegoating a good and honorable officer who was doing his job in the manner he was taught will not heal the wounds this case has caused for our entire city. I want to emphasize this statement that he made of who was doing his job in the manner he was taught because the video shows that Officer Pantelio wrapped his arm around Eric Garner's neck and clasped his hands in a vice grip, according to the prosecutor of the review board. And the police department, quote, has explicitly, unequivocally, and absolutely, unquote, banned the maneuver that 
led to this cascade of events where Eric Garner had an asthma attack and everything else. I'm bringing up this example for the reason of why the defense said that Mr. Garner's murder was excusable. The defense basically said Eric Garner was a ticking time bomb and set these facts in motion by resisting arrest. He makes the statement that Eric Garner was a ticking time bomb, specifically because Eric Garner was an overweight black man. And we often call people that are fat or have larger bodies. I use the term fat to reference a lot of the reclamation that fat activists have done around the term. The defense basically said the murder was justified because he was fat and thus he must have poor health. And so he was a ticking time bomb and wouldn't live long anyway. And that is one of the examples that I wanted to bring up of how this eugenic ideology, how this notion of waste or defectiveness permeates our culture. And it's not entirely in the medical industrial complex. It's also in the policing and prison industrial complex and all these other aspects of our society. It's kind of leached in. And it's not just, even though it's very prominently associated with disability and um, madness or mental illness, it's also connected with a lot of other aspects of marginalization, such as race, such as body size, such as citizenship status, all these other things. Also in line, in line with what you mentioned about um, the Michael Brown case, and it's just like sort of this general, I think, uh, view of black men's bodies and the way that they're treated because of this. As you said, like, you know, I think that's how the link you just made between like racism and and other factors also largely contribute. It's like some sort of different differing views of bodies based on um, just as you said, yeah, race and like this becomes like some sort of character construction or some sort of like metaphor, like the ticking time bomb that doesn't deal with some sort of like actual basis of of bodies and. Um, health and considerations of how we treat people because of their bodies and, and health and everything like that. Yeah, I, the way that the body is the nexus of all these different inequities and oppressions and how people are punished for that or considered disposable or defective or waste or unworthy especially in this case it's like unworthy of living like he was fat and he was black and that was taken to be this death warrant basically and justification for his murder because of the conception that people that are in larger bodies just don't live as long and you know obviously the aspect of his race and being black probably factored into this idea of just like he was likely a violent black man who was breaking the law by selling cigarettes like you know just the entanglement and the convergence of all these prejudices and biases just culminate into an excuse for killing someone yeah i think we have had a lot of um, good points and conversations here about like the health industrial complex and how this relates to the body, how this, um, how certain populations are deemed as waste or surplus or, or being burdens. Um, and this is all kind of like propped up by, uh, the, like the, like I said earlier, the sort of support system between capitalism and colonialism and, and, um, and, and racism that constructs, 
um, health in people's bodies and and um, health in general in certain ways to make it more like to put the emphasis on efficiency and money rather than actually taking care of people's health, which I think was a really interesting conversation. And it was, of course, very much inspired by and spurned by the, the health communism book, um, which we will definitely encourage you to check out to read. Mm-hmm.